You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Come along, R2. Don't be so silly. You can't possibly be getting whooping cough. Droids don't get diseases like whooping cough or measles or polio. But children do. If a young child gets whooping cough, it can lead to pneumonia, brain damage, even death. All you need is a little rewiring. But children need to be fully immunized. And alas, so many are not. All right, R2, I'll ask them. Parents of Earth, are your children fully immunized against childhood diseases? Call your doctor or local health department and find out. Immunize your children, please. And may the force be with you. Send for the Parent's Guide to Childhood Immunization. It's yours free. Write Immunization, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. everybody and welcome once again to Geek Fest Rants. My name is Carlos Peron and today we are going to hit posters of the month. With posters of the month, we have three selections this time. First is a Star Wars fan club poster, then is the Star Wars immunization poster, and the third one is the 2001 Space Odyssey bathroom instruction poster. Very interesting posters and I was able to find a little bit of the uh, history behind a few of them couple of little tidbits I've never knew about and stuff that I never thought I even wanted to know about, especially with that bathroom poster. Very, very unusual information. After that, we jump over to a very kind of small look at the current G.I. Joe and Masters of the Universe action figures, specifically two that I bought because they are going to be the ones that are going to be representing those lines in my collection in terms of the importance that those two specific lines have when it comes to the death of the Star Wars Kenner line. A very important time in toy history where these actually came out and started to actually compete with Star Wars. So let's begin with our posters of the month. You can collect them all. Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the six million dollar man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For the first poster, I'm going to go with the Star Wars Fan Club Death Star Trench run poster by Ralph McQuarrie. Now, I was not too familiar with this poster because this is a fan club poster that was sent as the first official original poster for fan club members. And I was not a member of the fan club yet at that point. I kind of jumped on the fan club right around the time of Empire. Because that's when I got here. I got here in late 79. So you're looking at 1980 as the prep for Empire. You know, the the, the marketing blitz for Empire. So a lot of the, uh, the goodies from Star Wars had already been sent out, you know, to people the previous couple of years. And I wasn't part of that. Uh, so this particular one, I just completely was, you know, off my radar. I had seen that picture before. And books and, you know, McQuarrie-related artwork. But I was never part of the original intent of that painting. What I'm talking about here, and you'll see it on the uh, on the art, you know, on the front page of uh, whatever you're seeing from our website, is what you got is a very kind of close shot of Luke 
but you only see him from the nose up. In the X-Wing, you see R2 right above his head, and you see the two massive engines of the X-Wing, and you can see Vader's TIE Fighter right on top of him shooting over him or at another X-Wing, possibly around them. You see another TIE Fighter back there. You see an X-Wing in flames to the left of the picture and another X-Wing that has not yet exploded on top. It's possible that the exploding one might be Biggs. I'm not entirely sure. It's possible that the the, the functional one up there might be Wedge. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I don't know how accurate the... the the framing is of, of everything happening. Granted, you want to see everything. You want to see everything in one shot here. You don't necessarily see the third TIE fighter. And if I am remembering correctly, I'm not sure if the third TIE fighter is the one that gets hit by the Falcon then then crashes into the second one and then knocks Vader off or, or some kind of combination of that. Or in all reality, I think by the time we get to having one TIE fighter and Vader... Luke is the only one left, really, because the other ones have already been blown up or, like I said, Wedge had already escaped, gotten out of there. So this is a way of kind of framing a lot of characters in the same vicinity, if you will. They could have added the Falcon somewhere out there, you know, trying to get to that or location too, but that's fine. But anyway, the history of how this was put together comes from... The book Star Wars Memories by Craig Miller, which I read, I think I read last year, and I did a couple of shows uh, talking about the the book and all of his background information and, 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 and the work that he did for Lucasfilm, you know, especially during Star Wars and Empire. Craig Miller at that time, um, the reason why he was involved in this particular poster was that he was running the fan club. And for the fan club, one of the things that they talked about was you know, okay, we can put out a poster, we can put something original in the fan club kit. And that's what he wanted to do was to put something original rather than just recycling stuff that already existed out there. Uh, You know, obviously under a certain budget. So the idea of putting an original poster out came out. And the options at the time was, you know, okay, you do have the, the movie poster that already exists that's, you know, out in every single movie theater. But that's something that people already had access to in a way. You could think about it. People could buy that poster, I guess, if you go to a poster store, a specialized movie poster store, which, again, I don't know how popular those were back in the 70s uh, or how accessible they were. I know that at a certain point, the the fan club did start offering movie posters uh, as something that you could buy. One of the things that, that he mentioned that, that when they talked about it, and I'm, I'm talking about like Lucas and, and, and Kurtz and, and even Charles Lippincott at the time, was that they really used to be very disappointed at the fact that a lot of times when you did buy a poster, most people used to send them a folded. And when you fold the poster, you kind of damage it a little bit. You create these crease lines that are kind of annoying. So one of the innovative ways uh, that they kind of said that they would agree to put out a poster is to ship it in a tube. This way, it would be perfectly, you know, minty condition, and you could display it without any creases. So the idea then was, okay, let's put something out there. And again, one of the choices they had is, well, we can, you know, get a nice big photo of Darth Vader or Luke or Leia. But at the time, they already had uh, the company called Factors, I believe, and we talked about them before too, that they had put out the first batch, the first wave of all of the Star Wars character posters, you know, all of that stuff was already out there uh, from Factors. So the idea, once again, is we want something original. Well, to go original, that means you have to commission an artist. And in this case, obviously, you have Roth McQuarrie, you know, on the payroll, (laughs) more or less. And that is the one that they wanted to go at. So Miller met with Ralph McQuarrie. He actually went to his house because He's, you know, at this point, he's kind of working out of his house. He does everything there. And they met together and they talked about, you know, the concept uh, that they were thinking about that, that Miller suggested is, is, you know, Luke on the trench, you know, as he's being chased by the bad guys. And the specific thing that he wanted, as opposed to static shots, for example, a lot of the um, paintings that we're more familiar with, with Ralph McQuarrie, they're kind of cinematic, very wide, very vista, you know, vistas, scenery, that kind of big, big pictures. But those were specifically made in that manner, uh, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them, because the purpose of those original Macquarie paintings uh, was to 
convince people or give people a snapshot of what Lucas is thinking in terms of the visuals of the story. He's not being specifically dramatic or anything like that, but he wants to give you as much information as possible, whether it's an executive who might be willing to back the film financially or a special effects guy trying to figure out, you know, exactly what do these things look like. So in this particular case, he requested, Miller requested from Macquarie, that what he wanted was to portray speed. He wanted to make it look like it's very kind of tight in there and the speed is tremendous and there's so much happening, you know, that makes it very dangerous. You know, that kind of slightly claustrophobic feel to it. And if you look at the poster, that's exactly what you get. You have Luke in the X-Wing and it does look very tight in there. And actually, I think it's a little too tight. I think they made it look even tighter than it probably should be, you know, as far as the the, the the setting, you know, the set goes of the construction of the cockpit. You have those walls that are really tight around you. And again, you know, as I mentioned before, the, the positioning of the ships is not exactly cinematically accurate in terms of chronologically when all these ships showed up. But for this picture, you get that sense of, oh my God, he's about to get blown into bits, just like the other guy over his shoulder there. You know, you get that feel of speed and the laser beams coming off of uh, Vader's modified TIE fighter, and I think you uh, you achieved that, and that is what became the official fan club poster uh, that was first uh, sent out, you know, for for membership. I, like I mentioned before, hadn't seen it in this form. Uh, I had seen pictures of it, me, you know, even in, in, I'm sure even in like Tops cards or something, I had seen this picture, but because it wasn't part of the original Macquarie paintings, I wasn't sure exactly where it came from. You know, when you think of Macquarie paintings, the first thing you think of is the, the paintings, the original concept drawings that he made. Then, as you might remember, he was commissioned or kept on the payroll to do other things. He drew stuff for merchandising. He drew stuff for the company itself, Christmas cards, you know, whatever, letterheads, you know, all kinds of art that was needed. Here's where he came in and chipped in and, and, and did extra work on. He did that for quite a while where he didn't just come up with the conceptual drawings. They, you know, they used his skills for other things. And this was one of them. I had not had this poster. And as a result of reading the book, Star Wars Memories, and, and seeing what it looked like and realizing, oh my God, this is what they're talking about. I was able to go on eBay and purchase one relatively cheap. I forget how much it cost me, maybe 10, 15 bucks or something. It's not in pristine shape. The edges are all kind of chewed up and it's got little holes in it. Like somebody actually kept it in a room. And you know what? I don't mind. I don't mind that. I, the same thing happened when I purchased my Darth Vader poster. It, it, it looked like it had some even like possible like water stain damage on it and stuff like that. And it's like, I don't mind that because it gives it a little extra authenticity or vintageiness, if you will. This one, as a matter of fact, the closer I look at this poster, I am noticing a couple of little watermarks here or there. But the I would say 90%, 95% is pretty much intact. It It's beautiful it's wonderful it, it's a Macquarie you know which is it's a big deal for me you know the, the Macquarie posters are just fantastic his way of drawing things and it is of its time it is something that it even predates me in terms of when I did start buying things I was already you know a little bit further along than this particular snapshot of Star Wars fandom you know I was already in an empire mode by this time I by the time I started going kind of nutty buying stuff but this is one that you could probably find uh, for a pretty cheap price and it does have some history to it and it is an important item it's not just a you know, yeah, whatever, just print it. I don't care, whatever. There is a little story to it in terms of how it uh, it came about. And um, Miller said on his book is like, once he showed it to him, he was like, I'm sold. I, I love it. It's perfect. It's exactly what I wanted. There was no like back and forth. Of, well, can we change this? Can we change that? No, he was like, perfect. It came from Macquarie. It is perfect. All right, our second poster is also a Star Wars theme poster. And again, it's another poster that I wasn't too familiar with because again, it came out before I got here. And that is the Star Wars immunization poster, 
which is kind of very timely if you think about it these days, as we are coming out of this year of COVID and people are getting their shots finally vaccinated and we can kind of get back to a normal uh, way of life, more or less. This is a poster that was put out as a PSA, if you will, a public service announcement. Just like, if you guys remember, I talked about the Star Wars, the read poster, the Yoda read poster, it's, you know, to encourage kids to read. Well, this is a poster that was put out to encourage kids to get immunized, to get their vaccines. Back in the 70s, they were having a problem with measles, that there was some kind of resurgence of measles, and there was a public effort, you know, through things like this, popular uh, things to promote getting your kids vaccinated, and this was one of them. This particular poster I've seen now in two different forms. They both have the same header, which says, Parents of Earth, are your children fully immunized? And then you have a picture of R2-D2 and C-3PO that looks like they're almost inside one of those Death Star rooms, security rooms or something. That's what it kind of looks like. Uh, The floor looks a little odd. I don't think I've seen that floor before, but the background kind of looks... A little bit uh, like like what we're talking about. The bottom of the poster has more text, a little smaller, and the one I have says, do your records show it? Call your doctor or health department to make sure, and may the force be with you. Do your records show it? Your immunization, obviously, uh, records. And then there's a secondary version of the poster that says, make sure, call your doctor or health department today, and may the force be with you. Again, uh, very little difference, except that they basically changed the first sentence in the bottom. The one I have says, do your record show it? And the other one that's out there says, make sure. Very small difference. Very simple poster. And apparently, if I guess if you were to go to a doctor's office, you might encounter the, this kind of a poster back in, in the late 70s. But there is a little bit of a story behind this poster that I've never knew. And I found it through a, uh, an article on the internet. The story goes that a man by the name of Peter Schillingford, who was hired to do the making of Star Wars documentary, the one that you could probably find it on YouTube and it shows up every now and then on some VHS tapes and that sort of thing, as the original making of Star Wars, one of those first documentaries that actually aired on television. Again, this is right as Star Wars was uh, was coming out. The man is from, from England and he was hired to go and, and, and shoot all this stuff. And at one point... They asked him, hey, we got another assignment for you. Can you come in and take a couple of pieces uh, from our set? You know, they were all in storage at this point. And put together a quick little PSA, public service announcement about vaccination. And you'll have Anthony Daniels and Kenny Baker in their costumes, C-3PO and R2, just running a few lines. And we'll do like a 30-second and a one-minute long commercial. And they did. He actually did that. He says he went there. He selected a couple of pieces of backgrounds. And if you, again, if you look at the poster, you could see like some of them look a little familiar. But the thing is that this was originally the way that he was hired to do this, a commercial, an actual television commercial. So they shot this thing. They picked out all these different things and they're, they're out there. You'll see the links. Uh, you can, you can watch them and, and they're kind of cute. They're kind of interesting. It's funny because one of the things, uh, you know, when they were looking for quotes from people who remember that shoot and, and, you know, he remembered part of the shoot and they also asked Anthony Daniels about it. Oh, he remembered a little bit too. And he, Anthony Daniels also mentions that one of the things he notices is there's a lack of continuity. If you keep an eye on the floor and where the actors are standing, that every now and then whenever they cut especially uh, r2d2 he's in a different location he keeps kind of like switching locations on the floor that's why it's much easier when you use a solid color floor this way if there's any change you don't notice it but here they use these i don't want to call them checkerboard but very angular big squares with different colors and you do see that r2 it's kind of like in different locations Uh, so that was kind of weird how how he noticed that i never noticed that when i first watched it uh not until it was pointed out to me and then like oh now i cannot it's one of those things you cannot unsee anymore Uh, but another interesting aspect of this was that anthony daniels apparently then at some point either was asked or volunteered or whatever uh to do a similar commercial about smoking about getting people to stop smoking and uh, I don't have all the details of how that came about, but it is out there. Again, different location, different settings. Uh, everything looks a little different. But what's interesting about this commercial is that the director, Peter Schillingford, 
was pretty much unaware that at the time they were also taking pictures to be used for a poster. So as far as he was concerned, this was just a commercial he was shooting. They must have had an on-set photographer that took a couple of pictures, and then those pictures, uh, one of them, became what this poster is. So it's really fascinating how, you know, you have this poster, and you kind of build this entire thing around this poster, but you realize that, no, the poster is basically the the offset product of something bigger, and, and that's how it came about. It, it's a campaign. I guess you, uh, you have your 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 television and your print ad campaign. And the poster version was completely separate to the extent where the, even the director had no clue that was happening, you know, while they were doing it. So, again, it goes back to this whole thing with Star Wars, especially with the artists and the people that draw stuff and the conceptual artists. How even the stuff that gets discarded, even the stuff that doesn't even necessarily end up being the end product of anything, later on somebody will grab it and use it for something else. This is exactly what this, I think, was about, is that at some point somebody decided, you know what, let's send the photographer out there and have him take a couple pictures. You figure the director would know, or you figure the director would just be in charge of that too. Hey, while you're at it, take a couple pictures because we might be doing some print ads too. So... You know, it's a cool story. It's interesting. And like I said, these are out there. You can go to YouTube and watch both of them. And I'm also going to see if I can put the the, the link for the smoking commercial because that's another one that's interesting. I don't even know if they ever made a poster out of that one. Who knows? It's very possible. It's cute because for the smoking one, it's kind of like C-3PO catches R2 trying to smoke. Don't try to figure out how that works. (laughs) It's not worth trying to figure out how it works. Don't think about it. That one, I think, came out closer to 1983. And I remember when I first watched it, I was a little confused because I'm thinking, wait a minute, these uh, PSAs came out around Star Wars time and you do see R2-D2 with an extended hand kind of grabbing something. And I'm thinking, wait, did he have that particular hand when he was in Star Wars or did that hand come in later? And then I'm thinking about it, wait a minute, in Star Wars, he does have it when he's trying to fix, you know, the the X-Wing. And, uh, but it is more prominent in the later films. But yes, it, it was later that he did that one. But again, for all we know, there might've been posters about this too. One little uh, trivia fact having to do with the smoking PSA for Star Wars is that if you look, you know, if you guys open up the the trailer, the link to YouTube, and look at the actual uh, spot, you will see that at the end there is some text and they misspell the word galaxy on the actual spot. It is really unbelievable how something like that could get through. And uh, I mean, unless it's a British thing, but I don't think it is. <laughs> I think it's just a misspelling. I-, I don't know how that happened, but I do remember that that particular immunization poster. I wish they would do one now. I wish Lucasfilm would would put together, especially again with COVID, because we're getting to that age now where they're starting to vaccinate younger uh, individuals and kids and that sort of thing. So this would be a great opportunity, just like they did with the Reed poster. This would be a great opportunity for Star Wars to put out an official immunization a covid immunization poster you could have the most popular characters you could put grogu and you could put like bb8 together and you could even throw a bone to the uh original star wars fans put it put put r2d2 there too put all three of them there you know somehow promoting a a vaccination poster That, that would be that would be great and just like before I was able to find this poster on eBay, again, maybe about 10, 15 bucks, not too expensive. There are two versions available, like I said before, and it is a small poster. It is a, it is a very small size poster, so it's not like a movie size poster, so that's, that's kind of neat too. The third poster that I'm going to add today to this show is the 2001 Zero Gravity Toilet Instructions. This is a poster that officially doesn't exist in terms of I don't think this was ever sold as a 2001 merchandisable item in other words it doesn't get sold in that matter I have a feeling most of the ones that are available like the one I purchased comes from Etsy people that are just kind of doing it themselves and from what I understand the way that most people have done it is that you take a look at the scene in the movie and they're able to kind of decipher all the words on the instrument because it's very thorough and it's like crazy thorough and the poster is basically a list of instructions if you watch the movie it is one of the few if 
maybe the only <laughs> funny moment in the film, which is unusual uh, for that kind of a film to have an actual purposeful funny moment. Stanley Kubrick put it there on purpose. He, he wanted to get a little chuckle, I guess, out of the, his audience in such a such a heavy, heavy theme uh, film to kind of throw that. It, it's a super quick shot. This is when Dr. Floyd is, uh, I think he's, he's traveling to the moon at that point, and he's taking one of those moon rocket shuttles. I think it's the Pan Am one. And he's, uh, there's a quick shot of him standing, kind of reading these instructions before going into the room, I guess, or the, the bathroom. And you have all these like 10 different steps of how to operate the zero gravity toilet. Now you got to remember, 2001 came out before the moon landing. So there was a, you know, there was a moon pro, there was a space program already and people were theorizing about the moon and this and that. But still, for this to portray a commercial, if you will, a commercial, not an experimental, kind of like the Apollo missions or, you know, that kind of stuff that was strictly, you know, experimental NASA related stuff. And what's amazing is that by looking at the history <laughs> of this poster, which there is practically no history of it. I guess at some point somebody decided they wanted to put it in the film and they did. Whether it was Kubrick or somebody suggested, I don't know. The point is that I did the usual try to find uh, some kind of history, some kind of an interview, and I couldn't find anything having to do with this. But what fascinated me the most about the poster is in trying to compare it to anything that's real. And the, the instructions themselves are kind of broken into three sections. The, the first section is about a toilet, is about how to use a toilet for method A or method B. I think they, they kind of talk about two different systems, but they're not very specific or very descriptive. I guess they didn't want people to read certain words that would be somewhat offensive or, or disgusting, to tell you the truth. Even in a movie. Remember, that 2001, I think, was rated PG. And not that you could read it. I mean, this shot, this is a very quick shot in the movie. They don't linger on it too long. But what I'm saying is that the, those 10 steps are broken into really three sections. One of them is about the toilet. I think the other one is about how to use kind of like a lavatory, like a sink, like if you're trying to wash your hands. And I think there's another one on how to use like a full shower. I think they call it a sauna shower or sauna vac for the, for the hand cleaner. So there's three different procedures. And you could kind of think, okay, back then people got a chuckle out of it and, and, and it is still a funny thing and, and, and it is still the type of thing that I don't think your average person understands that this is somewhat real. Unless you're a NASA nerd, you're not going to understand exactly how these things function. So my personal history is that I do remember going to Cape Canaveral a couple of years ago and there was a display of what looked like very complicated machinery that resembled something that somebody could sit in with a whole bunch of hoses and holes and buttons and levers and 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 then there was written on the you know on the sides that you could read descriptions on how these like space shuttle toilets work and you don't really get a good feel of it, let's put it that way. And and you really kind of don't want to focus too much. It's one of these things that you don't want to think about. It's like you think about space exploration and all you think about really is launching on a, you know, on a rocket and doing these experiments and floating away, you know, in zero gravity. But do you really want to linger on those things? And, and when you think about it, it's like, oh my God, you really have to train on just how to do very basic things as a little more conversational as showering or washing your hands or shaving. But when you get to the nitty gritty of using a toilet, that's when it's like, oh my God. And and again, that's the type of thing that you can't say, well, you know what, we're not going to deal with that too much because, you know, you, but guess what? You know, most people <laughs> of somewhat normal health, you have to use the toilet a number of times a day for different reasons. So it's something that has to be learned. And I started looking 
on YouTube. And again, it's YouTube. They're not going to get too specific and too um, disgusting to tell you the truth. But there are official NASA videos for interviews from, from astronauts that tell you exactly how it works. Apparently, when you're dealing with the original moon landing and, and the Apollo missions and all that kind of stuff, because you were dealing with a capsule, you don't have a bathroom in your capsule. You don't have that. You just don't, it's not there. Apparently, what they used to use back then, yes, they uh, some of the uh, astronauts did, when they're sitting on the pad waiting to take off, they have to put on those adult diapers to kind of keep everything in place. However, if they had to, use the bathroom and let's say number one let's let's refer to number one and number two in a traditional sense especially if they have to go number two they would have these bags with an adhesive that would be peeled or activated at the uh, mouth of the uh, bag and they would have to attach that and adhesive it to its to themselves they would go in there close it up Put it in a box, put it in a bucket, put it in somewhere that's sealed. That was the daily, you know, every time you go procedure. I believe they did not have any kind of suction or ventilation or anything that they do now. Now, there seems to be a two competing methods, if you will, or two prime methods. One method now is the space shuttle method. The other one would be like the um, the space station method, which some of them refer to as the difference between the Russian and the American versions. If you're in a space shuttle kind of scenario, in a scenario where you are not going to be there for a very long time, you're going to be there, and when you're done doing stuff, it's either thrown out into space or brought back down again. So, for example, what they now have for what used to be the space shuttle missions and and most likely for whatever comes next from from the american side at least is or is or was a small restroom where the astronaut depending on what they're doing number 1 or number 2 would have a hose kind of like a vacuum cleaner hose let's say and at the tip of that hose there would be an attachment that everybody would be assigned their own private attachments this way they can kind of keep those clean and nobody uses each other's attachments you put that attachment on the hose and a suction system created by pressing a button would then attach to you yourself and any fluids would then go into this hose into a container now, one of the videos I watched states that they are able to eject the liquids out into space where they would automatically crystallize because of the coldness of the space, but they were able to get rid of it right away. When you're number two, on a space shuttle, they have a specially designed seat, again, just like before, and this is incredible. There's an actual camera for training purposes, and I'm not sure if the camera system still existed in the functional one but the camera system actually shows you exactly where you're sitting uh let's call it a bird's eye view what is the opposite of a bird's eye view so that you're in the exact right position so that nothing goes wrong and suction is also created by sitting on that and then as you go everything gets kind of suctioned into another container so that then you can kind of clean yourself and throw down the suction also. So there's a lot of suction going on at this point. Remember, you're zero gravity, so you're also attaching yourself as much as possible with your feet and on your legs so that you are staying put on the toilet seat so you, so you don't just kind of float up. And that's how it works for the, the space shuttle. That material eventually then comes down to Earth with the shuttle, and then they get rid of it, and obviously put a new one in, and that's until you know, they change, they change it. On the um, space station, it's a little different, and that's the, the the Russian system because it it would appear from the videos that I was watching that they all kind of share on that same hose, so it's very important to keep that clean. For the number one procedure, they're all sharing the same hose with the same attachment. For number two, they seem to be using a way, way, way smaller receptacle to be used as the toilet for sitting down on it. And it does have a suction system too. 
And I guess by keeping the suction on, at some point it gives you enough time to be able to stand up and clean yourself and then throw whatever wipes or toilet paper or whatever it is that you have into uh, the container, you know, the box, the, 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 what's holding things together down there to get suctioned in there and to be able to push it down. And then there's a little bag that you seal the bag and then push the bag down. And then you put another bag waiting for the next person to be used. So it is a amazingly disgusting, <laughs> fascinating, complicated, procedure just to do something so simple. And what's really amazing is the fact that even back then, uh, with 2001, they had already experienced that and they were trying to simplify it for people watching the film, if they were going to actually look into it that thoroughly, to see how it would work in a commercial environment, uh, you know, for your average person. How do you make this simpler and more user-friendly? if you will, but without it being like super crazy complicated, you know, for, for NASA and, and even for, for the space station, it's very like militaristic in terms of the, the machines, the, the knobs, you know, it's not like you're using an iPhone in terms of everything is stylized and very user-friendly and simple to the touch. No, these are very distinct machines and knobs and hoses and things that are happening. But it's amazing. It's just amazing how everything has to be thought of. And something as simple as this poster, something that at first glance, it's kind of like a little joke, but it's not. It is that I would I would I would go as far as to say that the procedure itself from watching some of these videos on how these things are done, it's even more meticulous and complicated and there's steps that have to be followed for everything to be done properly without having a, a problem. Uh, one note uh, that they mentioned in terms of, well, what happens if you have a backup? Like, what's your backup? What if there's a problem and the, the, the toilet system fails and breaks? The NASA saw, uh, astronauts were saying that, well, if there is ever, especially on the space shuttle, for example, because the space shuttle is the one that doesn't stay up there too long. It comes down after a while. But for the space shuttle, they said, well, that's when they go to plan B. And plan B is using those adhesive bags that the Apollo missions were using. And they are, they're all, and I remember the, 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 the host of that interview was saying kind of like, and that's something they really don't want to do. <laughs> they rather use the more modern system than those other ones because those are very uncomfortable and difficult and just just a big hassle to have to use but it's just again it's one of these incredible things that you don't want to think about but you think about and you're like oh my god there's actual science and there's actual thought like like heavy heavy thought put into how to make what would we consider the simplest things in the world function for real now this poster as i mentioned earlier i got it from from an etsy maker and I have it now uh, framed, and it is in my uh, in my bathroom. Are you a genre TV, film, sci-fi, horror, fantasy, toy, and convention nerd? Nerd! 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 Do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin, or else it gets the hose again. <laughs> Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me. Help me. Help me. Help me. Shut up. Geekfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. I'd like to talk about the fall of Star Wars Kenner action figures. And by that, I'm talking about a period in time where interest started to kind of wane on Star Wars figures, where eventually they disappeared. As you probably know, 1985 was, I think, the last wave of figures. 1983 was Return of the Jedi, where the last movie came out. And you could kind of say the last big push for Kenner... Star Wars figures was taking place. 1983, 1984, and by 1985, they had introduced, I think, the last 17, the Power of the Force line. 
and they were trying to transition to the droids and Ewoks, you know, with the hopes that that would kind of pick up the slack and with the hopes that Power of the Force would turn into an ongoing greatest hits and missing character line of Star Wars figures, but it did not work out that way as we, you and I know. So what was it that made Star Wars kind of fall by the wayside as far as collectors and, and interest was around? Well, obviously, if you don't have a movie, you don't have the toys. The movies were a gigantic source of pushing forward the merchandising. I mean, plain and simple. You're looking forward to that next movie. Granted, when Star Wars was coming out, nobody knew it was coming and nobody was expecting anything special. Once you got your Star Wars, the machine started to roll and you were just waiting for the next and the next and the next. Empire was a monster. Next and the next and the next wave and the next toys and the next posters and the next whatever. Same thing with Jedi. However, with Jedi came the more or less bad news that this was it. This was the third film. And even though there were interviews in the past or statements made that this was going to be a longer franchise, uh, not just one trilogy, but a series of trilogies, let's say, anywhere from six to nine to 12 films, depending on what day of the week, uh, you know, you talk to George Lucas, it basically ended. There were a lot of mitigating factors of why everything kind of ended after Jedi. I think a lot of it had to do with uh, Lucas being tired, Lucas's marriage falling apart, Lucas wanted to spend time and raise his kids. A lot of that was, I think, the motivating factors behind it. In the meantime, he had enough companies that he had started to continue the money growing and being able to provide a service to other filmmakers you know, through Lucasfilm sound and special effects with ILM and, you know, all these different Lucasfilm companies that he would definitely not be starving. But at least Star Wars would have to be put on the back burner for a while, if not completely abandoned. And we all know how that went. But one of the biggest motivating factors for the toy, especially the action figures, was the movies. They did have those television animated shows, but they did not work out. And even if they would have worked out, I strongly doubt they would have been enough to sustain the toy line. Now, the idea of trying to sustain a toy line with an animated show is nothing new. That is one of the contributing factors of why Star Wars toys also disappeared. Back in 1982, 1982 is a very important year for nerds like us. I was 12 years old. It was the year where the most amount of genre films that were incredibly fantastic came out. I've done a couple of shows about this. But 1982 was also the year where we started to see Masters of the Universe, He-Man, and G.I. Joe come out with their toys and were their you know, the, with their television shows and all that stuff was already rolling. And wow, that hit very hard. Now, granted, it's 82 and now you're starting to compete with right around the time, a year before Return of the Jedi comes out. So you could kind of see that, okay, by 82, 83, they're competing with Star Wars. And Star Wars is still pretty strong because you got a film out there. By 84, I imagine the numbers probably start to change. By 84, you got more Star Wars, possibly a, a, a third or a fourth wave of Jedi figures or something like that. And these other two properties, G.I. Joe and Masters of the Universe, are starting to grow and grow and grow. 1985 hits, and then you have your final wave of Star Wars, and it's goodbye Star Wars at this point. Masters of the Universe and G.I. Joe reign supreme. They are the kings now of that mountain. I dabbled, I guess you could say, <laughs> in Masters of the Universe and G.I. Joe, but very slightly. I'd say I took a I took a preview of them. I had, for Masters of the Universe, I'm pretty certain I had He-Man and Skeletor, and for G.I. Joe... I think I had, I think the character's name is Snowjob, which is the guy in the skis, because I really love the fact that he came with skis for some reason. And I had, I think I had 
I might have had a snake guys also, and maybe one either Duke or one soldier looking guy. I'm not entirely sure which one. But the important thing about these toys is that I never jumped on that bandwagon. Once I left Star Wars, and I left Star Wars in a sort of unhappy manner, my interest was starting to wane. After the last Return of the Jedi wave, I was pretty much done for a combination of reasons. Obviously, the interest was waning, but also being able to find those last 17, those Power of the Force figures, had become incredibly difficult for me for some reason. You got to remember that in my particular case, where I lived in Queens, and even though I was traveling to Manhattan every now and then for I don't even know if I was going to conventions at that point or maybe I was just working part-time or summer, you know, summer jobs, that sort of thing. There was a store, I don't know if it was Forbidden Planet, I don't know, there was a store I would go to, but I don't remember, I basically don't remember ever seeing those figures. I know that there are people that claim to have found them everywhere, uh, KB and this place and that place and everything. Well, I just didn't have them. And again, my interest was starting to wane, and the fact that I couldn't locate them was even more reason. I mean, if this was internet world like it is now, I would have gotten them all, you know, I would just ordered them or whatever. But the point is that I tried Masters of the Universe, you know, I watched the TV show, and the TV show does, I mean, it is a, a somewhat of a sustainable model. It worked for Masters of the Universe, and it worked for G.I. Joe. You had the toys and the TV show, and the TV show fed the toys, and the toys fed the TV show, so it was a cycle going on, and it was a cycle that Star Wars could not duplicate with droids and Ewoks. They just, they just could not do that. I never even tried getting the droids or Ewoks uh, figures. Even to this day, you know, I kind of drew a line on those two. That's it. No, 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 no. They, they have to be actual figures that appeared in the movie, as far as I'm concerned, for me to, to you know, to chase them around and, and pay ridiculous amount of money for them. But I think it's important to acknowledge or understand the fact that this is how it used to be at one point. This is how things worked. The He-Man figures, I remember, and again, I only had two, and I knew some people who had quite a, and believe me, there are people who have huge collections of them. The He-Man and the um, the Skeletor. Uh, I do remember how much He-Man looked like Conan, and at the time, I never made the connection. Obviously, later, way later, I found out how there is a connection between He-Man and Conan and the fact that they were trying to sell certain toys and, and draw certain concept art for them. And because one didn't sell, they just kind of like repackaged it and sold it as something else. And it became what, what He-Man later uh, turned into. The reason I mentioned these and, and the reason that I, I'm talking about these two specific lines today, Masters of the Universe and G.I. Joe, is because in my office, I always have a lack of room and I'm always trying I'm I'm always kind of like removing something in order to put something else up for display. And yeah, I might have to start putting some stuff away because it is it is pretty much full now. I have no room for newer things that I've been getting. So, I might have to kind of redesign things, but I do have a wall uh, on the far end of the office here that it is is not exclusively Star Wars and it does have representations of other things. I have a lot of reaction figures up there all these wacky uh, Mezco and all these wacky other companies that uh, have been tapping into the Kenner style looking figures. And when I do uh, find one specific one that I admire, I'll buy it if it's, you know, special to me. Obviously, I'm not getting the whole collection. It's impossible. I can't do, uh, I can't have a completist attitude when it comes to this sort of thing anymore. But I felt that it was important to represent these two toy lines, the Masters of the Universe and the G.I. Joe, because those were such an important, just in the history of toy collecting, and, and at the time, that, that was what was being purchased. And the fact that it, it kind of helped to dethrone uh, Star Wars, which was a monster that wasn't going to stop. It was an unstoppable monster, and finally, because of a combination of different things, it was dethroned. Uh, my G.I. Joe that I picked is, now, now granted, what I recently did is I purchased these new versions that they put out, and you guys are probably familiar with them. Hasbro has been kind of like repackaging the old G.I. Joe cards with a, a modern looking character. So I have Snake Eyes. And to me, I always loved Snake Eyes. I always loved the amount of accessories they gave you. And this is a, a more modern looking Snake Eyes, I think, than the original 
Kenner ones. The accessories are ridiculous, how accurate looking and how many they give you. And, you know, it's it's kind of tempting to open this thing, but I'm not going to open it. I'd rather keep them closed. But Snake Eyes is, is again, it's if you're into like ninjas and that kind of uh, mythology, it's a perfect character for that sort of thing. And, and there's a movie coming out, you know, they're trying to reboot the whole not-so-successful uh, G.I. Joe movie franchise, and I know they're putting out the Snake Eyes movie. The other one was Storm Shadow. I think it was Storm Shadow is the other, is the is Cobra's ninja uh, kind of character. So I didn't see him. I don't even know if they put him out yet. I think they did. I see his picture back here. So I wouldn't mind owning him. If I, ca- if I see him, I might pick him up because those two would make a nice, you know, a cool little couple in terms of how cool they look. Again, I don't want to fall into the, the collector's trap that I fall in on so many times before. But yeah, that's how they these are coming out. And there's also six-inch versions, like Black Series versions of them. And again, depending on who you talk to, some people love them, some people hate them. You know what? I'm not that committed to them. But as a representation of a historic toy, I don't mind having like one or two of those. On the Motu side, the Masters of the Universe side, it was either He-Man or Skeletor that I could pick up. And... For some reason, I went for Skeletor. Now, these are different because not only are they... I think they're more or less trying to recreate the uh, the old card backs, but the characters themselves, this is what makes them different than the G.I. Joe ones. The characters themselves, they're trying to recreate them exactly like they were before. So it's not like they're trying to make them... You know, like a modern version of them or anything like that. No, no, no. They're, they're trying to kind of stick to the original look. And... I think so far they're being pretty successful. They have a number of waves out. They've even started putting out, I think, vehicles. And, and I think even Castle Grayskull is, is is something that's on the horizon. You know, some people might have pre-ordered them already. But uh, it's cool because, like, the, the, if you look at the package, it even comes with a little comic book, like like some of the originals, the original ones used to come, which I think the little tiny comic books were, like, what kind of inspired some of the original material for this. And I know this is one of those weird ones. I don't remember if it was like the the little comic book and the toy came first, then the show, or if the show inspired the... It doesn't matter at this point. The bottom line is that this particular line, if you're interested in it, they're going for vintage accurateness, which is really, really, really cool if you think about it. And yeah, I picked up... And again, the reason I picked up Skeletor, I think, is because he is a much... I mean, to me anyway, he's a much more sillier character. Uh, he's kind of like Cobra Commander in a way. He's kind of like over the top. The voice is silly. And he's always making these ridiculous statements. But I like it as a um, a- as a representation of the Mattel side of how uh, they helped, you know, to chip away at, at the Star Wars toy franchise. So I don't think I'm going to get any more of those. And uh, again, the only one I would consider buying, to tell you the truth, is Storm Shadow. That, that would be an interesting one uh, to pair these two up. I am, I am somewhat hopeful that the Snake Eyes movie would be successful. I know we have a Masters of the Universe animated show that Kevin Smith is putting together. So I'm definitely going to give it a shot. I mean... Again, I look at people on Facebook and there's so many people out there that they prejudge these things so much in advance and they are hating on it so much in advance. Just by having the name Kevin Smith, it's like, oh, this is just garbage. It's going to be garbage. The guy's a, the guy's a hack and that's, and I'm not watching this. It's a, it's a travesty to, to, to my childhood. And dude, just calm down, man. People just lose their crap just by a headline. I mean, Again, I'll try it. Listen, try it. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you know, that's it. Move on to the next thing. Stop bitching and moaning about it. So that is an interesting approach. They're going to go, you know, they're going for the animated thing. I mean, they did have the Shira Princess of Power reboot, which was completely different style-wise. Uh, it was animated, but a completely different style as the original She-Ra or He-Man. And I have a feeling that the um, uh, the He-Man cartoon animated show is also going to be a slightly different style. I saw some pictures that look really cool, so we'll we'll see what direction they eventually do take on that. Uh, but I am looking forward to it. I, you know, I, again, I love it when they try something new. Try something new or try something old. I don't care. Just try something. Uh, every now and then they hit it. A lot of times they fail. You could probably say most times they fail, but every now and then they do, you know, come up with some good material. With GI Joe, 
I guess the option would have also been to, to try the animated side, which yeah, that's fine. You could try it, but I know that because it's 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 a GI Joe line, they always want to shoot for the stars and they always want to shoot for the franchise. And and with all of these Marvel and DC films, everybody wants to have a franchise, you know, a universe, a shared universe of whatever it is they're doing. And and this is an interesting attempt because by not hitting it directly head on so in other words by not going straight for the main characters and taking a shot at some of those kind of secondary side characters they're hoping i think to be able to you know pull an iron man in terms of oh well wait a minute if the character is not that well known then People might not be as judgmental about him. They'll be a little more open-minded, and maybe we can even explore the storyline a little bit further because less people might know about it. I guess, yeah, that's a possibility if that's what they're thinking about. Or maybe the fact that you're dealing with, like, ninjas. It's it's always a good selling point in terms of interest. It's like, well, it's not just a whole bunch of soldiers. It's, it's a ninja. It's like, ooh, a ninja. Wow, that's pretty cool. For whatever, you know, that's worth. And personally, I agree in terms of yeah, it would be nice if you could do something like that. And and, I, and and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I just watched that Mortal Kombat film that was not that bad. It was silly, ridiculous, but there was something good about it. And there was something specifically good that I wish they would have done more of. That whole opening sequence, you know, when there's that... Uh, that attack of Sub-Zero against the other guy and that whole historical uh, Japanese, I think it was Japanese setting, you know, of, of these train assassins, you know, all of them in sort you know, ninja kind of stuff. It would be interesting if somebody's able to pull off a, not realistic, because realistic, you, I'm not talking about a dramatic historical film, like, you know, Last Samurai type of thing here, but I'm talking about more of a genre thing. Can they make a modern, somewhat version of a ninja theme adventure thriller something in that vein something that not that is not necessarily tied or attached to gi joe so much that you feel like you're ignoring the central story but you're telling kind of like a secondary background story that eventually you could kind of tie to that again it's kind of like doing the whole shared universe thing you focus on a character that is not as important so that you can get people's attention and you don't have the weight of the world on your shoulders you know that's why you don't start with batman you don't start with the big ones you start with the the minor ones because you might be able to get that's how marvel did it dc did it differently the dc went straight for superman I don't know. I can't tell if that's why they're kind of running in different paths right now. But but with Marvel, maybe you could say that part of the uh, uh, formula for success was that they hit a character first that was not, you know, top tier. You know, number one. There was no Spider-Man. It was no no um, no Hulk. It wasn't Captain America from the beginning. It, it was kind of like a secondary tier character and then that opened the floodgates for everything else that's what i think they are kind of shooting for with the gi joe film i think they're trying to kind of get a, a kind of like a backdoor way into a franchise or, or a, a shared universe if you will now don't get me wrong if this movie is successful and i have a feeling because if you really think about it there's probably toys already in the works uh, for this film there's probably uh a number of action figures already manufactured and ready to go uh, having to do with this film that are going to have to live separate than this particular line. This particular line here that I'm talking about, the one that I have on my wall, my, my Snake Eyes, is a sort of a vintage kind of line. Even though it's a combination, you can call it a combo vintage because, well, you never know. I t actually, to tell the truth... The uniform looks pretty accurate, but it is a different sculpt. They're not, they're not just trying to recreate the sculpts of the original ones. And remember, those original ones, they were the ones that had that metal uh, screws on the, on the, on the uh, elbows and all that kind of stuff, that, that older technology. And, and I assume they probably just didn't want to do that, and they wanted to deal with modern joints and that kind of thing. But to me, it does look different. There is a definite difference between uh, G.I. Joe and Masters of the Universe in terms of one of them wanting to go completely retro and the other one want to kind of go half and half. We'll go retro with the packaging and we'll go kind of retro with the look, but we have to, you know, use more modern, accurate looking, modern-y 
you know, weapons and, and the, you know, uniform and that kind of thing. So who knows what direction the movie's going to go. I, I don't think the movie will be able to tag on to this because usually with a movie, even the packaging of the toy will have to be Snake Eyes, the movie or something like that. So normally for that sort of thing, they would have to create their own graphic designs. But I am cheering for it. I mean, I know, listen, Star Wars is my baby and Star Wars is always going to be my baby, but... I wasn't a, a Motu or G.I. Joe person, and but I did try them, and I can appreciate their place in history. It's not necessarily my thing, but they're very important lines. And they're, you know, to be objective about it and to try to not, you know, be a team player for Star Wars, they're really good. They're actually very well made, and they're, they're very creative. And, and for, for a kid collecting figures, they're fantastic. They're great. One little ironic fact, if you think about it, uh, having to do with the He-Man line and how, you know, that was something, again, it was new. People were not used to playing with these beefy, super buff <laughs> characters, not just the humans, but basically just about every single character in that line is these over muscular, you know, Conan-ish, that's a whole other story, kind of looking characters. And it's, it became kind of like their, their trademark in terms of these beefy characters. But anyway, fast forward to the mid-90s when the Star Wars line gets revived. And all of a sudden, it starts to pick up again. This is, again, after around the time of the um, special editions come out. And all of a sudden, Kenner is pushing Star Wars again. And, and pretty fast, it's, it's turned into Hasbro. And, you know, it's bought up. But anyway, the first couple of waves of Star Wars new figures, the new Power of the Force figures, Power of the Force 2, really. Power of the Force was the, the last 17, and this was a new Power of the Force line. Anyway, one of the biggest criticisms about those figures when they first came out was that they looked really unusually muscular. Luke had this gigantic chest. His face looked weird. You know, uh, Han, same thing. Leia, everybody had this weird, and a lot of people refer to them as the He-Man version of Star Wars figures. It was kind of like, if you think about it, it's kind of like, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. There must be something to making your figures looking super buff. Uh, I guess it, it sells toys. Luckily... After a few years, they were able to slim them down and, and get them a little more cinematic accurate. But I don't know why they went bananas at first, you know, in the mid-90s with making these guys look so unusually, unnaturally muscular. So I'm, I'm glad that these are out right now. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing more of this sort of thing. Uh, now, granted, even the uh, Motu ones, I think they did create the, the reaction version, or, or, or I don't know if it was reaction or another knockoff of the three and three quarter, you know, the, the, the five points of articulation version of that. So you never know if they're, they're going to come in, in, in other flavors, uh, you know, down the line that they've already done. But whenever somebody does something like this, you know, it gets my attention and as far as I'm concerned, they deserve a prominent spot on my wall of action figures. Okay, I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. We looked at a couple of new posters that I've been displaying. Really fun facts that I was able to find, you know, related to the history of these posters. Again, half the... Uh, the charm of the poster, as far as I'm concerned, is the history behind it, how it was made, why it was made, all those things associated with it. But these are really three very different kinds of posters that we dealt with. And we also touched a little bit upon the history of the figures that kind of took over the crown that, that Star Wars used to have back in the, uh, in the early 80s. I would actually add to that list, and I don't have a rep representation because I'm really not a fan of those, and that is Transformers. Transformers is another enormous, gigantic chunk you know, bite that took from the Star Wars Kenner line, uh, I would say as significant as G.I. Joe and Masters of the Universe, Transformers was another one that helped to dethrone Star Wars. So, thank you guys for joining us, and we will see you soon here at Geek Fest Rants. Bye-bye, everybody. Where are you? Artu? 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 Don't on fire!
hard to get when you find a cigarette. Well, I don't think smoking is grown up at all. Because it's very dangerous. Smoking does dreadful things to your lungs and is very bad for your heart. Well, I know I don't have one, but humans do. And I think we should set a good example. Well done, Artu. Oh, hello. You know smoking is bad for your health and it isn't grown up at all. So please, don't smoke. Artu, do you really think I don't have a heart? If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2021. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>